We have a word for people who are beaten up and it's not because of anything they did wrong. We have a word for people who get slandered or abused or experience violence or discrimination as just a reality of life. We call those people victims, and rightly so. But the book of Revelation has a different word for some of them. Winners. Victors, champions, conquerors. And if that sounds confusing, turn with me to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. Revelation chapter 2, reading at verse 8. And we're continuing in a series called Resistance. We're reading through the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2, starting at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of the first and the last who is dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have affliction. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. That's not the most encouraging sentence I've ever heard. I'm really curious to know about the first death. That's, I, there's a second one. That doesn't sound good to me at all. If you've been reading and you were paying attention just there, it's hard to imagine that the Smyrnians, which is a real word, I didn't make it up, the Smyrnians are going to be victorious at all. It sounds like things are going from bad to much, much worse. And even the encouraging sentence at the end doesn't sound that encouraging. What exactly is going on in the Bible here? Well, it might be helpful uh, to look at the slide we have for this series, the graphic that we've been using. Um, Resistance is the name that we're we're calling this uh, for a variety of reasons, but that's a big word in the book of Revelation. We chose this image of wave crashing on rock. And we did that because we're pretty sure that most of you have seen this somewhere, that you've been to the beach and you've seen the ocean and how vast it is and how powerful it is. But there's a decent chance that you've also been in the water and have maybe been in the water during a storm. And you know what it feels like when a riptide grabs you or when the current starts to move or when you're a little too far from shore and suddenly it's not fun anymore. You're in the hands of this merciless giant and it's confusing and it's terrifying and you feel helpless and lost and all you want is something solid. But... Most of us also probably know the feeling of standing on the shore or on a rock like this, seeing the same waves with all of their sound and fury and feeling confident. Not because you're somehow stronger than the ocean, but because the rock that you're standing on is stronger than the ocean. As long as your feet stay firmly rooted, as long as you stay planted, you'll be safe and secure. And you might get wet and you might get knocked around And you might stumble, but as long as you stay on the rock, you won't be harmed. That's what this letter is about. 
he's talking about Jesus as our rock. Something that we cling to, something that we stand firm on in a sea of troubles. It's the good news of the gospel. One of the things that we believe in the church is that anybody who turns to Jesus will find something really solid, even if they're lost and helpless and terrified for their very lives. And if it's been a long time since you found your feet on something firm, let me encourage you to come back to Jesus. Because that's what this letter is about. See, a guy named John is writing this. You can blank that out, thanks. Writing this on a rock in the middle of the ocean. A rock called Patmos. His name is John, and he's a Turkish pastor. He's been exiled. He's been tried and convicted and sentenced to never come back to his home ever again. And this pastor spends every day thinking about friends of his back in Turkey, friends back in Smyrna, and he's listening and he's thinking and he's praying and he writes down whatever he feels like God might be saying to the church and he sends this off as a letter. So it's really not a letter from John, it's a letter from Jesus, from the risen Lord Jesus. In verse eight it says, from the first and the last, the almighty God, the king of creation, And Jesus says this to you and to this church, this beleaguered church in Turkey. I know it's been hard lately. I know it's been hard lately. I know that you've been dealing with loneliness and despair and you're really just wrestling with some long grief and you don't really know what to do. I know it's been hard lately. I know you've been looking at your job and your industry and it's okay right now, but you feel like everything's shifting and you're not quite sure how long it's gonna last and if you're gonna have a job at some point in the future. And you don't like that you're thinking about money a lot, but you're thinking about money a lot and that's, it's just been hard lately. I know, he says, that you've been struggling, that you feel lost and confused, beaten down. And it's good news good news to know that there's a God who is with us in the midst of seasons like this, who is very close to us. It's in the name we call Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We don't believe in a whole bunch of gods out there who have their own thing going on and you have to get their attention to get someone to answer your prayers. We don't believe in no God so that really life is just this random chaotic mess and hopefully, you know, even though you're alone, you'll be okay. We don't believe in some distant God far away who doesn't really check in that often. Oh, Steve's in trouble? I had no idea Steve was in trouble. We believe in Jesus Christ, the God who loves us so much he became one of us, who lived our life from the inside, who knows what our problems feel like because he has had our problems. And that Jesus Christ is next to God the Father, constantly talking to him about his favorite subject, you. His favorite thing to talk about you and what's going on in your life that by the power of his spirit he goes before you and comes behind you that he is constantly whispering gospel truths into your heart that he has constantly listened to the things that you are praying about I know he says what's been going on lately I know your poverty your affliction your suffering I know that it's not good right now and for the church in Smyrna they're living in a place kind of like ours relatively wealthy place where people are relatively pagan. And if you look around, you start to realize, I'm not in that Christian environment. My city is not that Christian a place. My, my friends, my coworkers are, are really not that into the God that I'm, I'm really into. And there's this voluntary kind of poverty that comes along with that. 
that they would choose not to be a part of trade organizations and guilds at the time. They'd be trying to wrestle through some of the murky gray area stuff that you and I deal with sometimes. Well, I don't, I mean, I, I need this business contact and I'd like to get that client, but if I get involved in this, I'll be supporting slavery and their slaves in my church. Those are my brothers and sisters. I don't know if I can really, I don't know if I can invest in this. You know, I, I don't like what these people stand for it politically or sexually. And they just, they talk about some things and they stand for some things and I, I want to do business with them, but I, I don't want to get involved in that kind of stuff. And I just don't know that we can do this. I, you know, they, they talk a lot about race here, but they don't talk about it well. And those people are in my church and they're my family. And I just, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can do that. And there's this voluntary poverty that comes along with stuff like this. And you and I know that that's the way the world works, that we live in. You, you do the, kind of the best you can to follow Jesus. And you know, every now and again, you're going to lose. It's just the way that it is. That sometimes there are people who are wealthy and they live like they're poor people. Because they want to give money to the church, but they also want to give money away. So people with six-figure salaries live like they don't have six-figure salaries. And some folks who've worked their whole lives to get to a certain position, they, they decide, you know, I'm, I'm not going to mess around with some of the contract stuff that people have been messing around with. I'm not going to play some of these political games. I'm, I'm just going to trust that Jesus is with me. And that means sometimes I don't get the promotion. We know that there are people in our time who won't wear a pride jersey and that means not that they're terrible people or they hate other people, it's just they don't want to wear it and they don't make a national team sometimes. We know that there are consequences for following Jesus sometimes, for faithfulness sometimes. And there are folks even who are poor, who live like they're poorer. There's a missionary friend of mine who is supported by somebody who makes less money than he does. $30,000 a year. My missionary friend does better than that. And this guy tithes to his church, which means he gives $3,000 to his church, 10% of his money. And then he pays his taxes. And he doesn't cheat on his taxes. Even though he makes most of his money in tips, he pays his taxes. Because he knows that God is watching and it matters that he lives a life of integrity. And then on top of that, he gives my missionary friend $5,000 a year. This guy's living on twenty dollars to $22,000 a year, voluntarily. All because he loves Jesus. And that comes with a certain kind of affliction and suffering. That comes with a certain kind of poverty. And Jesus knows about that. Knows where you've made sacrifices because you've been following him. Knows where you've suffered the consequences because you've been following him. And he says, I know that you're rich too. Which is a good reminder that we've given up a lot to follow Jesus, but that doesn't mean we've gotten nothing in return. That actually, there are some people who are so poor that all they have is money. Actually, there are some people who are so poor that all they have is a wonderful family and a nice house. Actually, there are some people who are so poor they have everything the world has to offer, but they don't have Jesus. I'd make the trade. See, Jesus actually tells this story at one point in the Gospels, he says, you know, the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's like a, a guy who sold everything he had and bought a crappy piece of land. But there's buried treasure in the land. And to everybody else, that just looks like a stupid decision. But if you know about the buried treasure, it makes a lot of sense. There are hidden riches for those of us who follow Jesus. Strength to make it through the day. Wisdom that kind of seems beyond us. A power and a confidence to get through trouble and a season of storms. 
There's this rock that we find ourselves standing on when everybody else seems lost at sea and drowning. I know that you're rich, he says. There's more than one kind of poverty. More than one kind of poverty. And then he keeps going in verse nine. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not. They're a synagogue of Satan. Don't fear anything that's about to happen to you. Some of you are about to be thrown into prison, tested for 10 days. It's about to get worse, he's saying. It's a really fun message, this particular letter to the church at Smyrna. I know it's bad right now, just wait. I know it's hard to follow Jesus. It's gonna get a lot worse. There are some people who really don't like the Bible and Christianity because they think that what it says is you just gotta think positive and God will be good to you all the time, that religion is the opiate of the masses. When you actually read the Bible, you find out that sometimes God seems to double down on suffering, seems to encourage us that where life is hard, it's gonna get a lot, lot harder. And that doesn't seem to be bad news to the church at Smyrna, even though it feels like bad news to me. But you probably picked up on the end of verse 9. It sounds fairly anti-Semitic in our time, right? The synagogue of Satan, those who say they're Jews but aren't. Uh, And so I'm just going to say this. We live in a different historical time than they did. Uh, We've done some terrible things to the Jews as the church over the centuries. But in the ancient world, there weren't Christians and Jews. There were just Jews, There were lots of different kinds of Jews, more than one kind of Jew. There were Jews who were Sadducees, Jews who were Pharisees, Jews who were Christians, Jews who were Essenes, Jews who were Zealots. These groups were Jewish, and they thought of other groups as Jewish, and they would get together in synagogues, and they would read the Torah together, and they would argue about different things of it. But little by little, after the resurrection of Jesus, the other Jewish groups really didn't like that the Christian Jews were showing up in their churches and talking a lot about a God who doesn't care about some of the things they care about and accusing them of killing the Messiah. And they really didn't like that Christian Jews were coming in and reading their scrolls and proving to people that Jesus was the Messiah. And so eventually they just said, you know what, you're not welcome in the synagogues anymore, and they kicked him out. And that doesn't mean that life was really hard between Christians and Jews everywhere, but in Smyrna it seems to be getting worse. In the other churches we don't hear quite as much about Jews versus Christians, but here in particular persecution seems to be starting, not from Rome, but from the Jews. And they really don't like the Christians. And so they're going to go to the Roman authorities and accuse them of things. And it would be pretty simple. You go to the Roman authorities and you say, these people, they don't worship the gods of Rome. And the Christians would say, well, I mean, yeah, but we worship the God of the Jews. And the Jews would say, no, they don't. Those people aren't all circumcised. And the Romans don't know a lot about Judaism, but circumcision is one of those things that sticks with you, right? It's a... That seems like a significant move. These people don't actually seem as committed to that God as, as these other people. And, and so they would be tested. And the Romans had a very particular kind of test. Uh, we have letters from people in the first century. A guy named Pliny, who's a governor of Rome in Turkey, actually. And he writes a letter and he says, this is how I test Christians when I find them. I ask them three times, three times to deny Jesus Christ, to give up the name of Jesus and to worship the emperor. I have them do something simple, like burning a little incense, something small, something any Roman wouldn't think twice about, just a tiny compromise. But real Christians won't compromise. And after three times, when they refuse, I kill them. He says this casually, like he's talking about squashing a bug in his house. And one of the letters, he actually talks about killing two female pastors, one of the earliest references outside the Bible to women in ministry tells you a lot about what ministry really looks like in the early, early church. 
It's a dangerous thing to name the name of Jesus. But while these people fail the test of Rome, it really looks like they're passing a different test. While in one very particular angle, they they look like victims, that looks like power to me. That looks like strength to me. That looks like conquering to me. That's actually what the letter to the Smyrnians is talking about. That there's more than one kind of test. That the Romans may be testing to see whether or not you'll bow to their gods, but that God is watching also. And that while it looks like you're failing their test, you're absolutely passing another one. See, there's a kind of test where losing is winning and dying is living. To those who conquer, I'll give the crown of life, he says. There's more than one kind of test, but it's definitely getting worse for the church in Smyrna. And it's gonna get worse for us. I think that's just an easy thing for me to say. And I think if you're paying attention to our culture and you read the Bible, you'll, you'll see it's probably going to get worse. There will come a time and my children or my children's children, my children's children's children, when it will not be as easy to follow Jesus. In our time, it's fairly easy to follow Jesus still in our country. The most difficult thing that probably happened to you on your way to church was traffic. The most difficult thing that may have happened to you today when it came to deciding whether or not to go to church was, do I wake up from my nap in time and get my kids into the car? Right? That's the most difficult thing. But in Iran, it's a little harder to follow Jesus. In North Korea, it's a lot harder to follow Jesus. And these people still make it to church all the time. Which means we've got to start reading our Bible a little bit better. We've got to become deeper and deeper disciples. And we need to disciple one another and push one another to a kind of faithfulness that's stronger than the opposition we're going to face. I would wager, even though you think right now that it's pretty easy to follow Jesus, that if I ask for a show of hands, how many of you would get fired for talking to somebody about Jesus at work? Quite a few of us. And we know that kind of fear, so that even if it's not a law and even if it's not a rule, at some level you're just, you're kind of scared to try. And I have friends who do it anyway, who still talk to friends and neighbors and and coworkers about Jesus, and they find that they don't actually get fired, even when there are rules, but that people don't like them. People get really angry when you talk to them about Jesus, which is surprising. And they don't always get invited to birthday parties and they don't always get invited out after work and they do kind of get marginalized when it comes to promotions and things like that. Getting hard to follow Jesus. There was a story I heard from the Soviet Union. A girl came out just after the Iron Curtain. She went to the Moody Bible Institute and she was studying, and she finished one of her first classes and came to her professor in tears. She'd gotten an A. And he said, an A is a good grade. Like, is this a Russian thing? Like, I don't, you seem confused. This is a really good thing. She says, you don't understand. I've never gotten an A before. I've never gotten an A before. In the Soviet Union, when they know you're a Christian, you only get Ds and Fs. It doesn't matter what you turn in. That's how they keep us peasants. How they guarantee we'll never get better jobs. How they guarantee no one will ever listen to us. Because we're stupid and we're bad at school. And I would wager some of you who've gone to ASU and some of us who've gone to U of A, a much better institution. Some of us who went and studied science or any one of the humanities who were out there in secular schools, you know better than to raise your hand and say, I'm a Christian. You know better than, well, to resist 
when your professor starts making jokes about you and everyone that you believe, you pretend to laugh along and you sit in study groups and you act as though this is fine and that you also think it's stupid to believe things. It's going to get worse. 20 years ago, in the year 2000, 19 years ago, in the year 2000, there was an article in Christianity Today. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention decided uh, that it would be a good idea for them to try and, and really make an impact in big cities around the United States. And they were looking at Chicago, and they saw the crime, and they saw the violence, they saw that people were getting shot, and things like that. And they were thinking, you know, it would be great if for the next three years we encouraged every one of our young people to go to Chicago as missionaries. Uh, for their summer breaks, the high school students, the college students, the recent college graduates, they would go to Chicago and they would serve not just in Southern Baptist churches, but in any church that wanted them. That they would go and they would, they would kind of take up residence in the city. They work with nonprofit organizations. They would love people in the name of Jesus. They would lead people to Jesus. For three years, 25,000 students. It's a crazy goal, the idea of loving people in the name of Jesus. And the Chicago Tribune heard about it. And groups of Christians heard about it. And on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, they... They wrote a lengthy piece, the Christians, about how they hoped the Southern Baptists wouldn't send their kids. They hoped that people wouldn't come to Chicago and talk to people about Jesus. Because they didn't like the idea. They were pretty sure that it would, it would invite hate crimes or it would be discriminatory in some way. Or that if people were talking about Jesus, something bad would happen and they'd be associated with it. I know the slander of those who say that they're Jews but aren't. There are definitely people in our time who we know to be Christians, and we'd say, we should be on the same page when it comes to talking about Jesus. I don't understand. You, you should know better than this. You, you read the same book that I do. Why is, it that you're, why is it that you seem against us? I thought we were on a mission together. It's going to get worse, friends. And that's okay, because we want to be faithful people, people who are gritty and unconquerable, unshakably committed to this piece of real estate that we stand on because we know that anywhere else is terrifying. And we found a solid rock in Jesus Christ and we are unwilling to go jump into the ocean and see if we'll find a better place. To those who conquer, whoever conquers won't be harmed by the second death. To those who are victorious, I'll give the crown of life. I was hanging out with a friend the other day, and he was talking about how it's great that in churches, we invite people forward for prayer, and uh, he works at a, a larger church, and we were just talking about things like, it's a really cool thing that we do, and it's great that we say to people, you know, I'm sure life is hard, and if you just want to come and kind of have a, and a shoulder to cry on or an ear to listen to you, things have been hard lately. We want to be those people for you. And it's okay to just sort of like... I don't know, take a break and, and lean on Jesus. It's a really cool thing that we do, he says. But sometimes we imply almost that like following Jesus, it's like we've already lost. Like somehow that the, the battle's already lost and, and that we've joined the losing side and that it's, it's harder following Jesus than it is not following Jesus. Can you imagine, he says, if Eisenhower did that or if any of his commanders did that in Normandy? People storm the beaches at D-Day, and, and he says, you look, I'm, I'm sure most of your friends from high school just died back there, and I know that you've been through one of the most traumatic experiences anyone could ever imagine, and, and really, you probably just want to sit down and cry and give up right now, and that's okay. He says, no, that's not what they did. What they said was, that was brutal, and we're going to go take the next hill. 
and the next hill and the next hill. We're going to the next battle and the next battle and the next battle. We're going to be faithful. Those people didn't die for nothing. You're not going to die for nothing. And they went through worse battles than that. Anybody looking at D-Day, just statistically, it looks like a loss. The estimate was that 20,000 allies died and about 3,000 Germans died. Doesn't look good. The estimates going into the battle were that 75% of the paratroopers would die. But that was the plan. That was the way to victory. You see, the crown that Jesus is talking about in this letter, it's um, not a crown like you think of, right, with the Queen of England or whatever. It's a, a braided sort of thing of olive branches. It's something that you would give to a soldier who is victorious in battle. It's something that you would give to somebody in the Olympics when they'd run a good race, when they'd fought a good fight, when they'd made it to the end. It was the Olympic medal. See, athletes suffer, but they do it for a reason. Soldiers suffer, but they do it for a reason. They go through hell sometimes because they believe that on the other side of it, there's more than one kind of death. And you and I believe that there's more than one kind of death. That for many of us, before we knew Jesus, our life was basically just death. And that in coming to know Jesus, we've come to this brand new kind of life. But we also absolutely believe that there will come a day when the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and you and I will be looking in the eyes of the risen Lord Jesus. And the people who have persecuted people all over the world will be looking in the eyes of the risen Lord Jesus. That oppressor and oppressed persecutor and persecuted will be looking into the eyes of the risen Lord Jesus. And Jesus will judge us. And because he's Jesus, we trust him to be good and just. And because he's Jesus, we know he'll be merciful and gracious. And even great evil people like myself may find grace on the other side of death. Whoever conquers won't be harmed by the second death. There's a second kind of death, something that happens on the other side of death that we should be concerned about for ourselves and for other people. And our faithfulness somehow, our faithfulness somehow is a witness in a broken and cruel world, a witness that we are standing on something solid, that no matter how hard the waves pound against the rock, even if the water comes up over the rock, even if we find ourselves laying down and the water is well over our heads, we refuse to let go of the thing that we have clung to because we trust Jesus. There's more than one kind of faithfulness. He says to those who are faithful, I'll give the crown of life. When we talk about our faithfulness, it's not that you need to try harder, that you need to be a better... Maybe you do need to try harder. Maybe you do need to be a better Christian. That's just not what it's saying here. What it's saying here is not conviction. It's not correction. The other letters to the other churches, God has lots to say about things that you need to do better. But here he's just encouraging you. Look, cling to Jesus. Be faithful to Jesus. And it's not the kind of faithfulness that says, well, you need to try a lot harder. It's the faithfulness that says you need to not lose your footing. You just stay firmly planted on this solid rock because he is faithful, faithful to give us this crown of life on the other side of death. See, this, if this was just an encouragement from me, I don't think it would be worth listening to. If it was just an encouragement from John, I think that would carry more weight because he's been exiled to a rock and he's willing to risk his life for the gospel. But it's Jesus who's writing this letter in verse 8, he says, I was the one who died, and I lived. 
And if we can trust anybody, we can trust the one who died and who lived when he says on the other side of death, you will live. You will not be harmed by the second death. I will give you the crown of life. There's an old song we used to sing um, in church when I was a kid, and you might know it. Um, It's a hymn of the church. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I like that it repeats that last line. In the early, early church, um, there was a little kid in Smyrna who read this letter when it first showed up, a kid named Polycarp. And he watched as people around him in the church of Smyrna were faithful until death. Uh, He watched as they made it through this test and they failed in the eyes of Rome, but they passed in the eyes of God. They lost in the eyes of the world, but they won in the eyes of Jesus. It looked like they were conquered, but they were conquerors. And Polycarp watched this as a little kid and it made a huge impact on him. Not only did he become a Christian, he became a leader of Christians, a pastor, and then eventually a bishop of the church in Smyrna. And many, many, many years later, when he was an old man, 86 years old, it got worse. Persecution came back, and the government of Rome hunted him. When they caught him, they put him on trial, and they tested him. Three times, they said, give up Jesus Christ, worship the emperor. No. Give up Jesus Christ. Worship the emperor. Burn a little incense. It's nothing. It's a little compromise. It costs you nothing. No. Give up Jesus Christ. Worship the emperor. You're an old man. It doesn't matter. You don't have that many years left. Live your life. For 86 years I have served him and he has never abandoned me. How can I abandon my Lord and Savior now? And they burned him alive. And the church at Smyrna kept a record of that. And they told that story again and again and again. Because for them that was a story of somebody who won. Somebody who fought the good fight, who ran the race, who was victorious, who conquered, who suffered for a reason, who died for a reason. And he conquered. He's a winner. And on the other side, he received the crown, the prize, the gold. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he says this, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. 
When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make us faithful people in a faithless world. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would cling to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And where it's hard right now, and where it's going to get worse, we pray, God, that you would give us the strength to follow you, the confidence to know that no matter how bad things get, you're always better. In the name of Jesus, amen.